Morning. So it's the first day of December, first day of Advent. Have you all got your calendars? Good. Anyone got those nice ones with chocolates in? Oh, good for you. I haven't. <laughs> oh, thank you. I wonder if anyone, not Stephanie, anyone know where the word Advent comes from? Anyone remember their Latin? No? No, I didn't do Latin either. Um, but I've looked it up, and apparently it comes from the Latin word Adventus, and it means coming. And in the early days of the church, when they celebrated Advent, actually what they were looking for wasn't the, uh, well, looking back to Jesus coming as a baby in Bethlehem, but when they celebrated Advent, they were looking forward to the day that Jesus would come again as king. And clearly as we enter this Christmas season, we are looking back to the birth of Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem. And this morning as we um, go back into the Old Testament, we're going to go back even further still. But as we do that, what I also want us to do is to be looking forward to the day of Jesus' return. Now, history is important, as Nathan was reminding us last week. But one of the reasons it's important is because through history, we can see the way that God is moving us forward to our future. So in this passage that we're going to look at this morning from Jeremiah, Jeremiah was looking forward to a great day when God would intervene in Israel's history, a day when there would be deliverance and restoration, and celebration. And similarly, we should be living our lives, looking forward to the great day when God will intervene again in history, the day when Jesus will come again and restore all things and take all his people to be with himself, a day of unparalleled celebration. But we have this hope because of what Jesus has already done. So at this time of year, we celebrate Jesus coming into the world as a baby. And that was amazing in its own right. But of course, he didn't stay as a baby. He came for a purpose. And Romans 8 tells us something of that purpose. It tells us this. It says, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, so he came as a human baby, to do what the law couldn't do. And what couldn't the law do? It couldn't free us from the penalty of sin. And why couldn't it do that? Because it was weakened by our sinful nature. So in other words, we were lost and we were helpless. But God took the initiative. He sent his son. And Jesus could do something and Jesus did do something. He sacrificed himself so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See, if we put our trust in Jesus and submit to his lordship, we are made righteous and walk free from condemnation. These are we've been seeing this morning. This is what Jesus came to do, to set us free from slavery and adopt us as sons and daughters, to bring us into his family and to make us to be a people that will be with him forever. And that's our glorious hope. This is the new covenant that God has made with his people, a covenant made possible because of the shed blood of Jesus. And it's that new covenant that we celebrate this morning as we break bread together. And it's that new covenant that I'm going to be speaking about now. So we're going back, as I say, into the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to look at chapter 31, and in particular, verses 31 to 34. So that's Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. 
So let me start by reading that passage to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with my people, uh, with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. So Jeremiah was writing about 600 years before Jesus came. And his prophetic ministry spanned 40 very turbulent years. He lived through the, last, uh, the, the time of the last kings of uh, Israel. He lived through the final breakup of the kingdom. And he lived through the time of exile of the people into Babylon. And his basic message to the people was that the downfall of Israel wasn't because of God's failure, but because of theirs. See, God had been patient and gentle and tender through their many times of rebellion. He had been a husband to them in the very best sense of the word. But they continued to break covenant with him. And there is and there was a consequence to rebelling against God. There is judgment. But even in the midst of his judgment, God showed mercy. And through Jeremiah, he foretold a time when there would be a time of return from exile. A time when Israel and Judah would be reunited. Even now, he hadn't forgotten his people. He hadn't rejected them. A time was coming when there would be restoration. A time when God would make a new covenant with his people. A covenant that would last forever. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, um, in the passage we're looking at this morning, it comes in the middle of a section which particularly looks forward to this time of return and restoration. So in the previous chapter we read this, For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Judah and Israel, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land I gave their fathers. And a bit later it says, Foreigners will no longer be their masters, for my people will serve the Lord their God and their king, Descended from David, the king I will raise up for them. The king, of course, was Jesus, born of David's line. Now, they were going to have to wait. As I say, they're going to have to wait 600 years or so. But Jeremiah told them that when the time came, this time of restoration, this time of the coming of the king, it was going to be a time of celebration. So these are a few extracts from chapter 31. I will rebuild you, my virgin Israel. You will again be happy and dance merrily with tambourines. Sing for joy for Israel. Shout for the greatest of nations. Shout with praise and joy. And a bit later, tears of joy will stream down their faces, and I will lead them home with great care. And of course, we know that when Jesus, their king, did come, his birth was heralded with choirs of angels singing songs of joy and praise. See, this was going to be a momentous day for Israel. It was going to be a momentous day for the world. And this is the context in which we find our passage. This is where we read, The days are coming, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. A new covenant. Now, this was radical. Actually, it was so radical that their minds couldn't process it. So whilst we look back and we see these verses perhaps as the climax of this section of Jeremiah, even perhaps the whole book, history shows us the Jews completely missed it. They just didn't understand. And the truth is there are many still in the church now that just don't get this truth of what Jesus did through the new covenant. And that's what we're going to be looking at, of course, this morning. Now, the word covenant is going to come up quite a lot. Um, uh, so it would best be clear what it means. In English, we don't use it much. And when we do, we tend to think of it as a sort of a contract. So uh, two parties come together and they make an agreement. Both commit to various obligations. So it's a two-sided agreement, effectively. But that's not how the word is generally used in the Bible. It's almost always in the Bible used to describe a one-sided agreement. So really, we might better understand the word as a promise. Um, that promise might have a condition attached to it. So like you might say to your child, I will take you to the cinema, but only if you behave. Not, I guess that's probably not best parenting practice. But, um, but that's how, that's, um, you see the difference for contract. There's no negotiation involved. It's all at one person's initiative. So if it helps, translate the word covenant as promise, and you won't go too far wrong. Okay, so back to Jeremiah, verse 31. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant or promise with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that, of course, begs the question, well, what was the old covenant? Well, God had made several covenants with his people. And you might remember that last time I spoke, I talked about the covenant God made with Abraham. The promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But that's not the covenant that's being referred to here. You might remember back in the passage we read that this covenant will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So the covenant that's being referred to here is the covenant that God made with his people through Moses. And you might remember that God had delivered his people from the land of Egypt, from slavery. They'd come through the Red Sea. And then Moses had gone up Mount Sinai and God had made the covenant there with his people. And it's actually a bit more of a process than that, but that's as much detail as we need for now. The upshot was that God promised he would bless the nation of Israel. He promised them that they would be God's special possession, a kingdom of priests to God and a holy nation. He promised he would protect them from their enemies and treat them with grace and mercy, and he would forgive their sins. But there was a condition, and that was that the people had to obey God's commands. And we know they didn't do that. Now, we know that there were individuals who tried, and we know that from time to time the nation as a whole came together and followed God. But for most of the time, they were going their own way. They were walking in rebellion. Somehow, even the promise of God's blessing wasn't enough. Somehow, they just couldn't keep the law. And now, when this word came, they'd been conquered by their enemies. They were in exile. They were hundreds of miles from the land that God had promised them. They'd broken the covenant. So, was it all over? And the answer here, as it was in Isaiah, was no. The people had been unfaithful, but God remained faithful. And here God is promising a time will come when there will be blessing again, a time when there will be restoration and peace and rejoicing. And here in verse 31, we read, this will all come about when there is a new covenant. A new covenant, not like the old one. Now, the blessings, actually, of the old covenant were, were amazing. 
um, and the old covenant was part of God's plan. But it was only ever intended to be temporary. It wasn't perfect, but it pointed forward to something that would be. And there are a number of ways in which we can see the old covenant fulfilled in the new. And I'm just going to pick up on a couple of them this morning. And the first has to do with the location of the law. So under the old covenant, the law was external. Here in the passage we read that the law will now be written on the people's hearts. And the second, the old covenant was... Um, there was, there was a uh, whole system of sacrifices for sin. But these were temporary and they had to be repeated over and over again. Here we read that I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So this is speaking of something fixed and permanent. So let's start then with the fact this new covenant is going to be written on our hearts. Just a few words, less than a sentence. But these mark a transformational shift. This new covenant was going to be radically different to the last one. Think back to the Mosaic Covenant. There were the promises of blessing by God, but receipt of these blessings was conditional on obedience to the law. And you remember the law was symbolized by the Ten Commandments. It was much more than just the Ten Commandments, but it was that, that was sort of the symbol of it, these Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. And these Ten Commandments were kept in the Ark of the Covenant, and that was kept in the temple. So it was right at the center of life for the Jews. And you might remember also that they were encouraged to write the law and keep it on their foreheads, keep it on their wrists. But what do all these things have in common? Foreheads, wrists, temples. They're all outside the person. See, the law stood outside, and it said, this is what you should do. It set the standard, but it was external did nothing to change people themselves. They had to do that themselves. They knew that if they were to be counted as righteous, they had to obey all the, law, all the laws and commands that God had given them. You read that in Deuteronomy. Their righteousness depended on their obedience, something they had to do. And of course, there's a problem there because external constraints and motivations can only go so far if in our heart we really want to do something else. And it's our heart that is the problem. See, the law itself was okay. Jesus summarized the law as you should love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is that we just can't do it. See, when Adam sinned, his heart turned away from God where it was when he was made and it turned inwards to himself. So now keeping the law is not a natural thing to do. So you imagine a door that's on a spring. You can keep the door open. But as soon as you let it go, it'll swing shut again. So it was with the law. You could keep it for a while if you tried, but it went against your true desire and your true nature. And sooner or later, you would break it. No matter how great the promise of blessing, no, how, no matter how dire the threats of punishment and hell. In our natural state, what we really want to do is to love ourselves. And even if by dint of sheer determination we manage to conform to the outward requirements of the law for a time, nothing external can change our hearts. As Romans says, the law failed because it was weakened by our sinful nature. So what to do? See, the law could try and bend people into shape by force, but for a true and lasting solution, it was the heart itself that needed to be changed. And that's what God did. See, about the time that Jeremiah was prophesying about the coming of the new covenant, God gave the following promise to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. He said, Then 
I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will put a new heart in you and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your old stubborn stony heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. See, God's answer to our sinful hearts, our hearts that were so focused in on themselves, those hearts that could not truly love God, was to take them out and replace them with new ones. See, this was no temporary patch-up. This is no make-do and mend. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are new creations. The old has gone. The new has come. And you know, when I was preparing this message, it was my worry that this is going to come across as a bit of a lecture talking about the old covenant, new covenant, and um, maybe it has. I'll leave that to you to decide. But maybe some of you have allowed yourselves the luxury of just tuning out a bit. But if you have, I just encourage you, please tune, tune back in again. Because these are words of life. And I know for some of us, these are words that are quite familiar, and perhaps we've become a bit cool and complacent about them, but these are words that should excite us and thrill us. I want to to read a couple of passages from Paul. Now, in terms of content, these are relevant because they describe something of this radical transformation that God has worked in us. But really, what I want you to do is try and get a sense of his excitement as he writes. So these passages are both from Ephesians. So first one is from um, a few words from chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In the beginning of chapter 2, and you were dead in trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in Christ, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you get something of the sense of his exuberance that he tries to put into words the enormity of what God has done for us? And I want us to grasp these truths a bit stronger today because the more we get hold of them, the more we will be changed. These are words of security, hope, freedom, life, and forgiveness. But we need to grasp them, to believe them, and to live in the good of them. We were dead in our sins. Our hearts were hardened to God. But now we've been made alive. We've been given new hearts. We've been made new creations. What does all this mean? What it means is that in our our most fundamental identity has been changed. We were dead. Now we are alive. We were God's enemies. Now we are his sons and daughters. We were sinners. Now we're holy. We were condemned. 
Now we're free. We were outcasts. Now we are seated with Christ. We were orphans. Now we are adopted into God's family. And you see these things, these are all one or the other. There's no progression here, no stages of progress. Just as you can't be half pregnant, so you can't be half a child of God. You're either in or you're out. And if God has given you a new heart, you are part of his family. And that's complete, it's settled, and it's forever. It's all God's work, and there's nothing you can do to add to it. And there's nothing you can do to reverse it. Your identity has changed forever. This would be a good time also to say the converse is also true. If you haven't been given a new heart by God, then none of these blessings are yours. And there's nothing you can do to earn them. There are no scales you can balance, no standard that you can try to live up to. You can come here on a Sunday, you can be kind and generous, but there is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. But... If you cast yourself on God's mercy, he promises he will not turn you away. He will give you a new heart too, if you will ask. You too can be a new creation. You too can have a new identity in Christ. And you can do that today. See, in Christ we have been made new. We've been adopted into God's family. This is our identity now, and nothing can change that. See, the new covenant isn't about what you do. It's about who you are. Now, yes, you might say, but you don't know me. I just keep sinning. And you're right, I don't know you. But I do know me. And I know I do the same. I fail. But this is what I also know. And is that that failure doesn't change my identity. Now, if you've had children, you'll know that they aren't always perfect. But does that ever make them less your children? And of course it doesn't. And it's the same with us. We are not defined by what we do, but by who we are. See, the focus of the new covenant isn't on our performance, but on our position. And I hope that you will see this morning, this isn't just some sort of theological nicety. This is life-changing. Under the old covenant, there was always the call to be obedient. There were standards and there were demands. And this inevitably led to judgment and to condemnation. But now we are free. There is no condemnation. We are not judged on performance. That whole load has been lifted. We are loved. We are accepted. We are secure. If we can get hold of this, it will defuse so many of the lies that the enemy throws at us. These are truths that will truly change us. So we've been made new, adopted into God's family. We have the law written on our new tender hearts. But what about our sin? We read in verse 34 that our wickedness will be forgiven and our sins remembered no more. Now we all know that we do things that are wrong, even by our own standards. Does that not matter anymore? How can our forgiveness, our our wickedness, just be forgiven? How can God just forget about them? Do we get off scot-free? We know that we haven't met the righteous requirements of the law. How can we now stand before God as if we had? It just doesn't seem right. Imagine somebody broke into your house while you're away. 
and they completely vandalize the place. And in particular, they destroy some items that are of great sentimental value to you, things that to you are irreplaceable. And this person is caught, and they're brought before the judge, and they're tried, and they're found guilty. But the judge says, yes, this man is guilty, but he's my son. He says he's sorry, so I forgive him, and I'm going to let him go with no penalty. Would you say that's a good judge? Wouldn't you rather say that's a travesty of justice? See, justice requires a penalty for breaking the law. Precisely because God is good, it means he can't just airbrush our sins away. A price has to be paid. But the price is high. Go back to that example of the person that broke into your house. Imagine they were found guilty and then ordered to pay damages and the sum was fixed at £25. Would that cover it? Well, no, of course it wouldn't. Some of the items that were destroyed were irreplaceable to you. It would be an insult to think that a few pounds could ever even begin to be just compensation. And the damage we have done to God is so much greater. Because God is so pure and holy and good, and because all our sin is ultimately against him, the just penalty for our sin is so much more than we could ever begin to pay. And to think that we could even try through our good works or anything else, is an insult to God. So if we can't do anything, what is the solution? Well, under the old covenant, there was a whole system of sacrifices, the provision God made. God said if the people offered a sacrifice of an animal, he would regard the penalty as having been paid. But the blood of an animal was never actually adequate. It was impossible for these sacrifices to actually pay the price for sin. It was only ever a token gesture, a reminder to the people that sin had a price. And this was reflected in the fact they had to continually offer sacrifices. Every month, year after year, they had to keep making sacrifices. And that said to the people, this is just a temporary solution. It pointed forward to a time when there would be a permanent solution, a sacrifice so great and so perfect, there would never need to be another one. And that sacrifice, of course, was Jesus the perfect Lamb of God. So Jesus came into the world as a man, but a man whose heart was perfectly orientated towards his Father. He had no sinful nature, yet he, and he lived a life that perfectly obeyed all the demands of the law. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, and he did. He met every one of its righteous requirements perfectly, and having done all of that, he allowed himself to be taken and nailed to the cross. See, he substituted himself for us. The Bible says he became sin for us. See, it's as if he absorbed all of our sin actually into himself. It was as if he was actually guilty of committing it all. He bore the shame and the guilt and the dirtiness and the horror and the ugliness of it all as if it was actually his by right. And then he died, paying the penalty for it all. The perfect Lamb of God fulfilled the law even as he died, paying with his blood the price of our sin. See, this was the perfect sacrifice that had been foreshadowed in all the imperfect and temporary sacrifices of the old covenant. This was the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. And see, just as Jesus on the cross took our sin into himself as if it was actually his, so now he can make us righteous as if we had actually kept the law ourselves. See, because of his death, the righteous requirements of the law can be met in us, 
if we accept his death on our behalf. See, we can have right standing with God with all the blessings and privileges that entails. So when in a few moments we take the bread together, what we're doing is we're recognizing our identification with Jesus and his body in his death. Jesus said, this is my body given for you. We recognize that we died with him so that now we can also live with him having his righteousness. See, God can forgive our sin and forget it because Jesus annihilated it completely, once and for all. At the last supper, when Jesus took the cup, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Justice has been done because Jesus paid the price. And our response? Well, surely our response should be one of thankfulness and joy. When you remember right at the beginning when, it's, uh, when I was reading, it was prophesied that when the new covenant came, there would be great rejoicing. I read these verses from Jeremiah. I will rebuild you, my virgin Israel. You will again be happy and dance merrily with your tambourines. Shout for joy for Israel. Shout for the greatest of nations. Shout out with praise and joy. Tears of joy will stream down their faces and I will lead them home with great care. We really have something to celebrate because of what Jesus did on the cross. We've been made new, freed from condemnation, made alive in Christ and credited with his righteousness. We've been adopted into God's family. Our sins have been forgiven once and for all. And we have the promise of eternal life with Christ. Isn't that a reason to celebrate? So as we come to communion now, we soberly remember the cost but we rejoice in what has been done for us. We look back to Jesus' birth, his death, and his resurrection, but we look forward to his coming again. This morning, we drink grape juice. One day, we're going to drink wine with Jesus at the wedding feast. And as Paul says, often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death in the past until he comes again in the future. And that's where we are now. Let's do that as we celebrate together um, um, the, the bread and the wine.